We've been going through the book of Esther this summer, and today you're going to see a radical reversal as the Jews go from fear of total annihilation to a massive celebration. In fact, this section that we're going to read today is like an index of party words because it's packed with so many words like shout, joy, rejoice, gladness, and feasting that are used no less than 15 times. It is a massive party passage. But God knows something about us and our parties. He knows how quickly our emotions dissipate and how easily we forget what we were celebrating. And so you're going to see how God actually prompts Mordecai and Esther to do something that we still have to do today. If you want to keep on rejoicing in what God has done for you and wants to do through you, because I hope you realize, my friend, rejoice a rejoicing Christian is still the most effective and useful Christian today. Oh, it's quiet now. Because I know right now we've got Christians that act like there's another category that makes you more effective and useful. Informed, up to the minute informed, active, militant, angry, political. Read your Bible. If you read your Bible, you will see that a rejoicing Christian is the most effective and useful Christian still today. And that's really good news. You don't have to be the most gifted. You don't have to be the most intelligent. But if you are still rejoicing, you haven't gotten over it, in what God has done for you and wants to do through you, look at me. He'll find a way to use you. Because God is still looking for rejoicing Christians Go to Ephesians, uh, Ephesians, go to Esther. We are going to use Ephesians later if I don't drop dead. Esther chapter eight. You never want to assume anything. Lord willing, we're going to Ephesians two. Esther chapter eight. On that day, what day? Well, if you look at the end of seven, we just had a massive reversal. The gallows that Haman had built to hang Mordecai on it, he gets hanged on it. And this wicked scheme to annihilate the Jews has now been exposed. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman. That was a common tradition in their day, that when your enemy had been defeated, you gained all their household, all their family, their belongings, their property. It's all yours now. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. So Esther's not just revealed that she's a Jew. She's revealed to him her relationship with Mordecai, that he's her cousin that actually raised her. Esther had told what he was to her. Oh, look at this. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. Now, it's not the sermon today, but it's worth noting. Here's another example. You realize this is another example of God actually using a man of God or woman of God in a high-level position of power in a wicked administration. Daniel, 
served for decades under four wicked rulers. Joseph served as number two under Pharaoh. Nehemiah was the cupbearer for this king's son. And now we've got Mordecai. He's the number two in the entire Persian Empire. Now, that had to be awkward, right? Is Ahasuerus a godly great guy? There's going to be awkwardness in serving as number two, but God loves to put his people right in the mix of wicked and dark and use them for his glory. Mordecai is now number two in the land, and Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Skip to verse 15. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a golden crown, with a golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. Notice not just the Jews. The entire city, the capital city of this giant empire shouted and rejoiced. So just like at the end of chapter 3 when it says the entire city Not the Jews were thrown into confusion when they heard this edict of annihilating all the Jews. They're like, what? Once again, the entire city shouted and rejoiced as this second edict of protection begins to roll out. The Jews had light and gladness. And Now watch how many times gladness, joy, rejoicing, feast, holiday. The the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province, that's 127 provinces from Ethiopia to India. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews. A feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for the fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Skip to chapter 9, verse 16. Now, the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives. So here's what the king had to do. You cannot change an edict once he wrote it. So he says, I've just got to write another edict to put on top of that one. So there's still the edict of annihilation on this date. But now he wrote a second one and said, you have the right to take up arms and defend yourself when this day comes. Now, the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces gathered to to defend their lives and got relief From their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them. But they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar. And on the 14th day they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th. And rested on the 15th day making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting as a holiday and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. It's a long complicated way of saying in the city they rejoiced and celebrated on one day and out in the rural areas it was a different day. But they're close. Similar time. But watch what happens in verse 20. And Mordecai recorded these things. He wrote it all down, what just happened. He recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them. So we've gone from spontaneous eruptions of celebration all over the kingdom. No one had to tell them, hey, celebrate. But he is now writing it down obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, from mourning into holiday. 
that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Why did he institute this? Why did he write it all down? Look at verse 28. That these days should be, say it. Say it louder. Remembered. That these days should be Remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city that these days of Purim should never fall. And Purim was the feast that they created based on the word pur. Earlier in, in the book of Esther, Haman cast lots, and the word for them was pur. And so now they've created a feast to remember how Haman cast lots to pick the day that they were going to be annihilated. Now, It became a day of grand deliverance as God rescued them. We're going to have a feast of Purim every year. Do you realize they still do this 2,500 years later? They read the entire book of Esther for the feast of Purim, and they actually have little handbells and things. And when every time Haman's name is mentioned in the story, they hiss and stamp their feet and jingle little bells. And every time Mordecai is mentioned, they cheer. And they read it every year. During World War II, When the Nazis found any Jew who was trying to carry a copy of Esther into the camp, they were killed immediately. The Jews have clung to the book of Esther as an example that God's going to see that they will never, ever be wiped out by enemies. The Nazis were terrified of the book of Esther. The Jews still celebrate this. These days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among Jews. The descendants. Also, here's the question. What do we see in this passage that looks a lot like us today? I hope you realize the Bible's not like, oh, this is a book about people way far away in places I'm never going to see, doing things that I didn't do. What's the point? Oh, the Bible's so good. I hope you realize when you read your Bible, guess what? You see who God is and you see yourself. You see yourself. So what do we see in the passage that looks a lot like us today? Number one. No one has to tell us to rejoice in good news, right? You just do. You just do. We had a celebration at my daughter Kelly's house this weekend, Friday night, Fort Mitchell. We're all, you know, we're all waiting to know the gender of this second baby. She's pregnant. Hello. And so when they popped that balloon, and I'd already voted, God had revealed to me. I voted right. I was on team girl, and pink stuff went everywhere. We didn't all just stand there and say, oh, it's a girl. We're like, ah! Even those that lost, the voted boy, they screamed. <laughs> we celebrate good news. No one has to tell you. It's natural. It's human. Oh, listen, when the shock waves of the good news of the king's second edict of protection for the Jews now began to roll out of the palace, whoo! The entire city went from being thrown into confusion to erupting in a massive celebration, which I hope you realize is something the Jews had not been doing to this point in the book. You realize there's been tons of celebrations and feasts and banquets up to now, but up until now in the book of Esther, the Jews only fasted while every feast has been a pagan Persian party in the palace. They've known nothing but fasting. A lot of feasting going on in the palace now. 
You realize this word feast is used 16 times in the book of Esther. But the final five are all in reference to what the people of God do now. They've gone from fasting to feasting. And there's one Hebrew word. Often, I hope you realize, the New Testament's written in Greek. The Old Testament's written in Hebrew. But sometimes they struggle, translators, to translate a word. And they'll use different English words. There's one Jewish word for joy that's used in this passage I read to you today. But it gets translated one time in English as rejoice, two times as joy, and seven times as gladness. It's the Hebrew word samak. Samak. In other words, this passage, it's only used a hundred times in the Bible. This Jewish word for joy, samak, and yet... The Holy Spirit burns up 10 of them right here in the book of Esther. It's a joy smack down. Yeah. Because, oh my goodness, there is an incredible reversal and deliverance right here. Why would the Holy Spirit burn up 10 of the 100 uses right here? Because this event of going from total annihilation from wicked people to a massive celebration of deliverance because of a sovereign God in ways that they could have never scripted is one of the best occasions for putting on display this word and what it's really all about. You see, the word samak, there's other words for joy and gladness and rejoice. This word samak is a word that means a strong, spontaneous emotion of extreme joy that has to be expressed outwardly or visibly. In other words, I got to get it out of me. You know, the expression, I'm going to pop, I'm going to burst. You know, sometimes you can say, I'm I'm happy. I'm just sipping my coffee. I'm reading a book. Trust me, I'm happy. That's not Samak. You don't have to tell people you're happy when Samak happens. They're like, I think he's happy. I think she's happy. It's like, I got to express this outwardly, visibly. In fact, this Hebrew word, samak, is characterized by three elements. It is spontaneous. In other words, it just begins to erupt. You didn't choose it, it happens. Number two, it's based on and triggered by something outside of you. It's not because of anything in you. It's something outside of you. An event, an incident, something triggers this. You're like, oh! It's spontaneous. It's based on and triggered by something outside of you. And it's so strong, it has to be expressed outwardly. Oh, in the culture and language of the Jews in that day, this word samak was often expressed and shown in conjunction and accompanied by skipping Leaping, dancing, twirling, shouting, singing, and playing instruments. And so now that I'm a grandfather, I got to tell you that my two-year-old grandson, Jack, Jack Ryanary, is the king of Samak. Oh, Jack's the king of Samak. I mean, he, he understands, he says, typical boy, he says almost no words. He's not stupid. He just doesn't feel like talking. But he knows how to express what he's feeling. He's taking it in and he responds to what he sees. Oh, because when he's at one of our family gatherings, I got five kids and we're kind of loud. I've noticed all my sons-in-laws and it takes them a while to get used to us. Like, oh, wow. 
We're like Italian or Jewish. We're loud. We all talk. We laugh. We tell stories. And sometimes I'm always like, what is wrong with them? They're just sitting there chewing. And I have to remember, everybody's not like us. It's okay to just chew. Like, what are you thinking? What are you? And like, when Jack is at one of our family gatherings in our home, surrounded by some of his favorite people that love him the most. We, we say to each other, what did we used to do before Jack? Because now we all just sit around and watch Jack and talk to Jack and are delighted by Jack and play with Jack and go on with Jack. There's something we used to do. I don't know what it was. But now it's Jack. Oh, man, when he's in one of those moments that he knows, I'm surrounded by my favorite people that love me the most. I got Aunt Sarah. I got Uncle Blake. I got Uncle G. I got Uncle Harry. I got Nana. I got Pop Pubs. He begins to put on a show and demonstrate what this word is all about. He doesn't say anything. It takes him a while to warm up. But once it all dawns on him, he begins to move out onto what he considers the dance floor. (laughs) And he begins, I kid you not, it's amazing to see. He begins to high step it around the coffee table in the living room. Like one of those, what is that person in the Ohio State marching band? Drum major. I mean, knees high up, kicking his feet, just circling, making laps around the coffee table. Oh, but he's just warming up. Once his little cheeks are flush and his curly head is damp with sweat, he takes it to the next level. He just throws his arms out. And he begins to spin and twirl violently with no concern of injury to himself or damage to pop-pop stuff in the house. It's okay. When my kids broke stuff, not good. If he breaks stuff, whatever. (laughs) He begins to twirl and spin violently with no concern for injury to himself or damage to my stuff. Oh, but when that's not enough to express, and it never is, all that he's feeling, he just throws himself on the ground in reckless abandon and just begins to thrash and roll around all by himself in a massive celebration. It's breathtaking to see. It really is. But now here, I'm not just looking for some excuse to talk about my first grandchild. There's a point to this. Here's what I want you to understand. Ooh, as breathtaking as it is to watch, and it is, as amazing and expressive and exuberant as it is, you ready? It ends just as quickly as it erupted. Oh, it's big, it's boisterous, but it's unsustainable. It's raw and real and oh so spontaneous. Therefore, it cannot be maintained or sustained for long. Guess what? We're no different. You realize we're no different. Even as adults, we are given to spontaneous eruptions of emotion, but we struggle to maintain any level of real joy because real joy is rooted in something more than a spontaneous emotion. And this is not a new problem. This is an age-old problem for as long as we've been human beings on this earth, which leads to my second point, number two. Oh, good news starts to fade unless you know how to work hard at remembering. You got to know how to work hard at remembering or good news starts to fade. It just starts to fade. Regardless, right here, of the -the over-the-top, smack kind of joy 
that we've got all in this passage. God prompted Mordecai and Esther to do something essential. God prompted them to create and institute a feast that every Jew is obligated annually to remember and celebrate every year. Remember this and celebrate it every year because they know emotions dissipate and memories fade unless you know how to keep it alive. Unless you know how to keep it alive, how to keep it alive. Look again at Esther 9, beginning of verse 20. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews in all the provinces, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar, the 15th day of the same, year by year. Verse 28, that these days should be, say it, remembered. Remembered. Now, if you're thinking, Brad, how in the world would they ever forget something like this? To go from total annihilation to a massive celebration because of what God radically, sovereignly hit, orchestrated, and done. Listen to me. If you're sitting there thinking that, what do you mean? Make sure you remember. How would you ever forget? If you're thinking that, then you don't know these people. And you don't know yourself well enough. You realize these people, the Jews, already had a history of God radically, massively delivering them, rescuing them from the most powerful nation at that time, Egypt. They were slaves, and he led them out of Egypt. And when they thought they were going to be destroyed, backed up against the Red Sea, God wiped out Pharaoh and his entire army. They watched horses and chariots and bodies washed onto the shore. And oh yeah, Samak. It says Miriam and the ladies jumped out onto the beach and danced and twirled and sang and beat tambourines. But guess what? In almost no time at all, those same People began to worship other gods. You're like, what? Yeah. Created a golden calf and said, here's your God that delivered you from Egypt. Are you kidding me? And then they began to attack Moses. Welcome to leadership. And say, it's your fault. It's your fault. You brought us out here to die in the desert. They've got a history of God delivering them. But oh, don't look down on the Jews. This is us. This is us. Because we're no different. Human beings, listen to me. Human beings have a track record. A tragic, embarrassing, consistent track record of celebrating big. And then in no time at all, living as if it never happened. We get sucked into the moment. We get sucked into right here, right now. Current trials and pressures and darkness and struggles begin to just choke out anything about what God's done, who he is and what he's done. Oh yeah, the number one command in the Bible. Anybody know what the number one command in the Bible is? Fear not. Fear not. Close runner up. Forget not. 58 times. Forget not. Forget not. We get afraid and we forget. We get afraid. Does this sound like anything different than today? We got people so afraid and they've forgotten 
who God is, where God is, what God's doing. Forget not. That's why you'll see examples like in Psalm 103. The psalmist is actually talking to himself. Psalm 103, you know what it says? Bless the Lord. Oh, my soul. He's talking to himself. Bless the Lord, oh, my soul. Bless the Lord. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, oh, my soul. And where's he go? Forget not all his benefits. And then what's at the head of that list? He gives a list, but what's he start with? Who forgives. What's the next word? Oh, say it again. Say it louder. Say it like it happened to you. All our iniquities. If the list didn't even go on, that one thing would be enough to keep you smack, dancing, twirling, leaping, shouting. You're not on your way to hell. Your biggest problem's been solved. You have a great high priest. You're sung over. He loves you. You're adopted. You're redeemed. You have a robe of righteousness. You have an inheritance. You're a citizen of another kingdom. And you've got a bridegroom preparing a place for you. He loves you and he's coming for you. Who forgives all our iniquities. In other words, the psalmist is like, I'm going to have to go over here and grab this truth. Grab it and drag it back to mind. I have begun to forget. I'm so focused on now, I have forgotten. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. David Pallison is one of my favorite authors and biblical counselors. Now with the Lord, but one of his final books that he wrote, he said this. When you actually remember God, you do not sin. That's insightful. This man sat with people for hours. He was an excellent counselor. When you actually remember God, you do not sin. The only way we ever sin is by suppressing God, by forgetting, by tuning out his voice, by switching channels and listening to other voices. Look at me. Hey, we've got Christians switching channels and listening to other voices saying, this is what you've got to be aware of most today. It's the wrong. They're wrong. It's not helping. It doesn't cause you to rejoice, does it? And you won't be living for what matters most. You can't switch channels. You can't listen to some other voice. When you actually remember, you actually change. In fact, remembering is the first change. Remembering. It's not in your notes, just like Psalm 103 wasn't. I'll give you another one. Lamentations 3, 20 to 23. Oh, that's one of the darkest little books in the Bible. But you've got this brilliant, almost like gem glistening in the middle of it in chapter 3, where Jeremiah says what we're talking about. This I call to mind. And therefore, I ha- it's not based on circumstances. Things are awful, you guys. It's not based on circumstances. He's like, this I call to mind. Who had to do it? He had to. Can someone do it for you? Yep. This I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. You want hope? You better call to mind and remember who God is and what he's doing and his promises and who you are now. This I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies are what each morning? 
You don't have to live on yesterday's warmed up microwave mercies. You get new ones. His mercies are new ever, every morning. They never come to an end. Great. You realize that hymn that we love? It comes from a dark book. Great is your faithfulness, O God. This I call to mind. This I call to mind. And therefore I have hope. Some of you need to call some, to mind some things if you want to have hope. Who your God is, where your God is, who you are, what he's doing. I have hope. Some of you desperately need to change. And so connect this now. If change actually begins to happen when you remember, that's the first step for real change is to remember. What is it that you need to remember that would help you change? What do you need to remember that you've forgotten? What is it that's been pushed into cold storage? What is it that's just become grainy black and white? What is it that is way kind of like a speck in your rearview mirror now? You, you would admit it's true. Oh, I know that's true, but that's how your sentences go. HD living color is right here, right now, and how bad it is. You can't do that. You won't have hope. You won't have hope. This I call to mine. What do you need to remember that would help you change? Change. The Jews added the Feast of Purim to their list of annual celebrations to help them remember. So what do we have to help us remember? Mm. Listen to me. I don't have time. I wish I did, but I don't have time to unpack it all. But here's the four things I see that I think we have as New Testament believers. He gave us his word He gave us his spirit, he gave us each other, and he gave us the Lord's Supper to help us remember. His word, his spirit, each other. You realize we exhort one another. Sometimes you're down and I'm up. Sometimes I'm up and you're down. That's why we get in groups. We can encourage each other and remind each other when something doesn't seem true to you anymore and you see it. That's why we sing corporately. You realize you can sing yourself into a new place? I hear people say, well, I didn't go to church on Sunday. I just felt so down. That's so dumb. You don't have to be in the right place to come. And you can worship your way and sing truth your way into a new feeling. Far more than you'll feel your way into the right place. Woo! Truth! Truth! We have each other. We have his word. We have his spirit. He's given us the Lord's Supper to remember. Let's start with his word. He gave us his word. Do you realize we have something so much better than a calendar full of feasts? They had all kinds of feasts. And it kind of, it makes me sad when I hear Christians sometimes, oh, we're going to practice all the Jewish feasts. That's so cool. Do it if you want to. But you realize we have something so much better. They did that because you realize we have 61 more books of the Bible than they had. In Esther's day, they had five books, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. How would you like to live with just that? They did. They had no Psalms. They had no four Gospels. There's my Savior, who he is, what he says, what he did. They had no letters of the New Testament. How should I live? They had no revelation saying, here's what's to come. Here's what's coming. Here's what's coming. Five books. We have 66 books of the Bible to help us remember, remember, remember. 66 books, 61 more than they had. So why did he give us his word? 
as I read it, how much of it? Every year, here's what I believe I see. When I read God's word, all of it, I see four huge themes that get repeated over and over. God gave us his word to help us remember who you were, who you are, what he's done, what's to come. Say it with me. Remember, who you were, who you are, what he's done, what's to come. Stand and move your arms. Just don't hurt the person next to you. If you're able to stand. Ready? You like feasts? All right, here's a little, we're going to move. We're going to do something. Yeah, we got New Testament stuff we do. Ready? He gave us his word to remember who you were, who you are, what he's done, what's to come, who you were, who you are, what he's done, what's to come, who you were, who you are, what he's done, what's to come. Begin to high step it. No, I'm just kidding. You may be seated. Oh, and you'll just see these four themes over and over. You'll find places like, oh, that's who we were. Then you'll find other great places. That's who we are now. Then you'll, you'll revisit places like, that's what he's done. And then you'll get places, that's what's to come. All that was intended to help you remember. If you forget who you were, you're in trouble. If you lose sight of who you are, you're in trouble. If what he's done just seems like a hundred years ago, like whatever, yeah, he died on the cross for me, I'm not going to hell. Please go just get alone until that attitude changes. There's nothing else you should work on except fixing that. And then if you lose sight of what's to come, this is what he's given us in his word. And so if he's given us what we actually need to remember, his word, his spirit, each other, the Lord's Supper, what's the problem? The problem's almost never on God's end. Do you realize? We don't have what we need. Here's the problem, you guys. You have got to hit pause. It's your choice. You have got to hit pause on this noisy, right here, right now, up to the minute, information saturation world that we live in and actually read the Bible. So that you'll know what is true and what is lasting. So that you'll not, I am just, I just don't want to hear it ever again when I hear Christians. And they say it in my small group. Oh, I don't have time to read the Bible. (laughs) Oh, this. Look at your phone. Go ahead and load one of those little apps that tells you how many hours you spent on your phone. It's shocking. Shocking how many hours you spent on your phone. You have time. You don't have the right priority. Go ahead and feel really convicted right now about what I'm about to say. We have so many Christians that as soon as the alarm goes off, they reach for their phone. Not to look at a Bible app. Got to see the latest of whatever. How many likes? How many this? How many that? How many stupid kitten videos? How many just, you know, ha, ha, ha. Before you know it, you've spent 45 minutes that you could have read the Bible. You could have read the Bible. You have time. You don't make time. And therefore, you don't remember what matters most. Oh, in a world that's filled with lies, here's what I see is characterized by all that the world's screaming and those other channels. Lies, novelty, what's new? Frivolity, silliness, and an insatiable appetite for momentary and superficial. They act like, oh, I want real, I want authentic, I want, no, they don't. 
We live in a world that has an insatiable appetite for momentary and superficial, novel, frivolous. It's God's word that gives you something solid to sink your teeth into that's lasting and life-changing. Brett McCracken in his excellent book, The Wisdom Pyramid, says this. We live in an age of constant novelty. Our digital feeds filter reality to us in short bursts of what's happening now. Breaking news headlines, trending videos, the latest meme. But all of it is fleeting and disposable. Oh, listen to this. The past and the future are out of sight and out of mind. You realize this book gives you the past, gives you the future, which changes how you live in the present. You realize you need the past. We need the past. We're in a culture that acts like past doesn't matter. Let's rewrite it or just crush it and act like it never happened. It's all about now. God thought differently. This book has a ton of history so that you'll realize you're not the first to go through this, so that you'll realize God has ruled over nations forever. You need the past, you need the present, and it will shape and change, I mean, the future, and it will shape and change how you live in the present. You don't have enough past, and you don't have enough future, and when you don't, you won't live right in the present. This will give you past, future, present, past, future, present come back to something timeless let me see if i can unpack a little bit of what he gave us his word for to remember who you were and who you are go to ephesians chapter 2 let me show you an example of this ephesians 2 oh here's our key word we're going to see it right here in ephesians 2 therefore what's the word say it louder Remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, he's writing to Christians now in the city of Ephesus, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time, before you knew Christ. Here's where you were, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, and having no hope and without God in the world. Could it get any worse? Alienated, separated, strangers, no hope without God. Oh, one of my favorite words coming here. Verse 13, say it. But, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For in himself, he is our peace, who's made both into one and broken down this flesh, the dividing wall of hostility. Skip to verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. Here's the word again. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You're in the family of God and a part of the kingdom of God. You're in the family of God and a part of the kingdom of God, which all is supposed to be bigger and have a greater priority than what nation you happen to live in during this temporal time on earth. Don't hear me saying I don't care about America. Do hear me saying you should be more excited about the family of God and the kingdom of God. The family of God and the kingdom of God, because that's what you're going to be a part of forever. This is temporary. This is temporary. You're fellow citizens with the saints and in the family of God. Now, let me show you what this looks like on a personal level, like personal testimony. 
Go to 1 Timothy 1, chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Listen to how Paul talks about this and holds on to this. Who he was, who he is now. Who he was, who he is now. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. And by the way, this is a letter he wrote, one of his last letters towards the end of his life, end of his ministry, after decades of knowing the Lord, serving the Lord, seeing amazing answers to prayer. Keep all that in mind as you listen to how he talks. Verse 12, I thank God who has given me strength. Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and an insolent opponent. You realize the word insolent means audaciously rude and disrespectful. You got somebody in your life that you think, oh, there's no hope for that. They're audaciously rude and disrespectful about Jesus, Christianity, things of God. Don't lose heart. So was Paul. I was an insolent opponent. Oh, here's our word. Say it. But I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save people who are already pretty good and doing the right thing to begin with. And they just need a booster shot. Christ Jesus came into the world to save. Say it. Say it louder. And watch what happens next. Paul doesn't take a big step back and say, yeah, those people out. I I, I wouldn't dare consider myself a sinner anymore. I'm a saint. Sinners of whom I am chief or foremost. He kept himself in that category. Why? Oh, folks, because if you lose sight of the fact that you're a big sinner, you'll no longer be excited about grace. Grace is no more amazing. He held on to that. He knows who he was. Therefore, he still celebrates in a smackdown kind of way who he is now and what Jesus. But I received mercy. His grace overflowed for me. I received mercy. And you'll see in verse 17 what starts to happen. When you still know who you were, and you are thrilled in who you are now because of him, you praise and worship. You see what just happened in verse 12? Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, to God only wise, be praise and honor forever and ever, amen. What happened? Did you lose your train of thought, Paul? No, he just had something erupt in him just from thinking again about the mercy of God just from thinking again about where he was when God found him and rescued him caused him to erupt and say I got to get it out to the king eternal immortal invisible to God only wise be honor and glory forever and ever amen he picks up with his train of thought I had to get that out folks by the grace of God as I read my Bible each morning I have these moments, I hope you do too, where I still lift my hand and say, oh God, that's good. Oh God, thank you. Oh God, thank you for what you've done in me. Thank you for what you've done in me. Thank you for who you are. I remember who I was. I remember who I am. I remember what he's done and I see some of what's to come. And I'm like, oh, praise you, praise you, praise you, praise you. When you remember, you start to rejoice. Some of you are super sad and dooby-dooby down. And I think you need to remember something besides Fox News, CNN News, and some of the channels you've switched to and come back. Come back. 
Come back to what he gave us that will change how you live. Don't have time to go there, but you can go there this week. What he's done, oh, go to Romans chapter 8, one of the greatest chapters in the Bible. No better place to see what he's done. Where it says there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And it's what God has done because the law due to the flesh could not do it. You got to keep the law and you can't. And so God did it by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And he rescued us. He did what we could never do. What he's done. What he's done. But oh, if you'll read your Bible, you'll see what's to come. What's to come? The whole book of Revelation is a great one from that, but that's not the only place. Jump over to 2 Peter chapter 3 as we close. 2 Peter chapter 3. You'll see this same word again. Look at 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 1. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of what? Reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the Basically, he goes on to say, scoffers are going to come and say, where are the promises of God? This is taking forever. And then he reminds them, guess what? A day in the sight of the Lord is like a thousand years. And then he says, oh, by the way, here's why he delays. It's not his will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Read this passage also. It's great. Then he says, oh, it's coming. The heavenlies and the earth is going to be burned up. The first wipeout was a flood. The next one coming, you guys, is fire. Fire. But then there's going to be a new heaven and new earth. It's coming. It's coming. And three times in verses 12 to 14, he uses a key word, wait. 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 Which in the Greek means more than we think when we think wait. It means look for expect, anticipate. You've got to live with a hopeful sense of expectation. And you only get that from God's word, these kind of passages. Living with a hopeful sense of expectation. Because as we age, right? As we age and the pace and pressures of life just begin to choke out any sense of hopeful expectation. But if you've ever raised young kids, had young kids, then you've seen what I'm talking about. Oh, man, I saw it in our kids growing up. I remember my oldest son, Harrison. I think he's 30 now, but when, I don't know how old he was. But, you know, you're, it takes a while to put five kids in bed. And we're talking, and we've talked, and I'm trying to get out. I'm trying to shut the door. There's only that, oh. And he would always ask, Daddy, Daddy, when's your half day off? Because I had a half day Thursday, and I'd take turns taking the kids on a date. Same answer every time. It hadn't changed. Thursday. His next question would be, and how many days away is that? Based on the day of the week, I'd tell him. I'm trying to shut the door. One final question. Is that a long way away? Oh, I saw it in my daughter who's 22 now and married Sarah. When she was three, I kid you not, she went through a season where she prayed the same prayer at the dinner table or in our family devotions. She's, She's three. And she'd say, Thank you, Mommy. Thank you, Daddy. Thank you, Heresy. Thank you, Wawa. That's Lauren. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you, Garrett. And thank you for my date with Daddy on Thursday. Now, there's five kids. She may be five weeks away from her turn. But she lived and prayed as if it was imminent and could happen at any time. 
She stayed. That's how we should live. That's what Peter's telling us. Live like children who know it's imminent. It could happen at any time. Anticipate it and it will change. If you hold on to the past and all that God's done, and you lean into the future aware of what's to come, my friend, it'll change how you live now. 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 And he gave us the Lord's Supper that we will celebrate where he says, just like the Feast of Purim, do this in remembrance of me. Oh God, thank you. Thank you for giving us everything we need to live right now. You've given us your word. You've given us your spirit. You've given us each other. And you've given us the Lord's Supper to remember what you've done. Oh God, keep us oriented outside of this world, living for what matters most for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.